Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today, returning to the program, is Joseph Mikett, who is the Director of Climate Policy at the Niskanen Center. So, welcome back, Joseph. Thank you. So, we are going to talk today uh, about something that I have heard, uh, broadly about an analogy that I have heard lots of people make uh, on all different sides of the issue, which is... They say, you know, this coronavirus thing is a lot like climate change. And some people who say that are people who think that climate change is a very important issue and, uh, you know, we, we need to be doing a lot more about it. And some of the people that I've heard say that think that, uh, well, actually, climate change is a, is a hoax or it's overblown or so on and so forth. So... You know, clearly not everyone who thinks that there is an analogy between these two circumstances agrees on all the details, but it is certainly an interesting uh, comparison to explore and some of the ways that the last couple months do or don't reflect uh, similarities to this century timescale issue of climate change. And since you are... Since you are a, a scientist, man, uh, we figured that you would be you would be a good person to bring on to, uh, to talk about it. Um, yeah, I'm happy to come on and talk about it. I'm, I mean, it's it's an analogy that I have used at times. Like all analogies, it's imperfect. Um, but I think you know you can use our our present day experience with uh, the coronavirus pandemic to help inform some of the concepts that we think about when we talk about climate change. And uh, likewise, I think you can see our recent experience with the coronavirus pandemic and see uh, both warnings and, and lessons to learn as we, as we deal with the, the longer and more persistent threat from climate. So, so, you know, on that point, I think that one of the, uh, I guess the analogies is I, that I think that is sort of, potentially a good comparison is if we if we look at the way different countries have um, have responded to coronavirus and that there's been a lot of I hate to use terms like this but so much groupthink in so many different countries that have followed the same type of approach that have haven't had the best responses right and then you look at a place like Japan that that did its own analysis, took its own pr- uh, procedures, and they've actually had a much better outcome. And I think that as I'm thinking through about climate change, I think that's one of the things that I'm very cautious about is that I think that there's a lot of groupthink within the you know, in sort of the environmental community. And my concern would be that if we rush into some of the policy prescriptions, let's just say the Green New Deal, um, that it's a lot of the same type of, of group think that it's, uh, you know, let's, let's have big restrictions on the way we're operating the economy that, that, that may not be the, the most optimal way that we could actually both, uh, have a thriving economy, but also actually deal with the, uh, with the root issue there, which in one case is coronavirus versus climate change. Do you think that that's a fair analogy? I, I sympathize and, 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 and see your view that um, many in the environmental community see kind of a problem that fits their hammer uh, or, or that um, the right thing to do is, is you know, is, is a one size fits all approach. Um, is that that's the concept you're kind of you're, you're working from. And I think you're right that. Um, you know, let's say you're gonna you're gonna act on climate change, right? Um, that is the the call from from climate advocates. Listen to the scientists act on climate change, and but acting on climate change can take a variety of of forms, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think we should be open to 
and I'm certainly open to climate action that looks very different based on the geographic, the economic conditions or geographic conditions in different countries, the economic conditions, the different social conditions. So um, when you when you look at what is right for the United States to achieve um, very low carbon emissions or or the new the the new target uh, in climate circles is what you would call net zero emissions. So, uh, not you know if you if you're still releasing some some degree of greenhouse gases or, or some measure of greenhouse gases, then you you have some program that's intentionally capturing them from the atmosphere or removing them from the atmosphere and and putting them uh, into a durable storage medium. Um, you know, the, the, the path to net zero may look very different in the United States than it does in, in Europe than it, than it will in, in developing African countries, for instance. And I, I think that probably as you respond to uh, outbreaks, uh, countries will find different um, uh, responses uh, more or less effective based on what their population is willing to uh, accept what their population can do and what they're in the in the capacity of their of their government to to aid their population in responding at a at a really high level do you think that because to promote a big ambitious environmental plan climate change plan whether it's you know the green new deal or something some alternative it's really going to take buy-in sort of the way we've had uh, you know, we've been told time and time again in this crisis that you've got to trust the experts. In general, what do you what sort of your takeaway from this crisis as how have the how have the experts done? How have the experts and the political leaders done in terms of communicating what needs to be done? Do you think that you're going to be able to, you know, if, if you're trying to enact environmental policy, I hate to put it in these terms, but do you think that this is this is going to be a positive moment for climate change to be able to go and say, well, look, see, we trusted the experts, the political leaders trusted the experts and see what a great result we had. Or do you think that they were going to look back and say, oh, my gosh, we trusted the experts and we've been locked down for, you know, for eight weeks plus And we now have, what, 20, 30 percent unemployment. Where do you think that? You know, I have, draw the line between the two crises. Yeah, I, so I have a, I have some thoughts on that, but I'm uh, <laughs> interested to hear your perspective first. Um, I, I think we learning is more important than saying, "Hey, we listened to the experts and everything worked out fine," right? Um, the the basic logic uh, in a pandemic and and in a in a, a world facing. Uh, climate change or dangerous climate change to me is relatively similar, right? Um, when you go and talk to the people who know infectious diseases the best, global pandemics of the kind we're experiencing now are like one of the things that they worry the most about. And when you go and talk to geoscientists, human-induced climate change is one of the things that they really worry about. And, you know, it's tempting to want to rely on an expert to say, okay, what does your computer model say? And what does the computer model tell me I need to do? And it's also tempting when that computer model doesn't come to pass or the scenario changes to look at that, look at that point estimate and say, these people don't know what they're talking about and now everything's ruined, right? And you really saw this play out in the pandemic with the, um, the group from uh, Imperial College, right? It, it was like, it, it came in the middle of March uh, Imperial College, which is like a, a very top high-end uh, disease modeling outfit in, in the UK, publishes this results about uh, the UK experiencing hundreds of thousands of deaths in an uncontrolled outbreak and the United States experiencing millions. Huge headlines all across the web. I think it was one of the things that precipitated large-scale responses in the US. Then... Um, a couple, you know, a week later or a couple weeks later, one of the, the chief scientists or, or one of the chief scientists, uh, Neil Ferguson, testifies in the UK Parliament and says, well, I, I actually expect much, much fewer deaths, an order of magnitude fewer deaths. And um, a lot of people saw that and said, oh, this guy's changed his model. The science has changed. That's not really what happened. 
right? You, you know, when you run a computer model and you try to analyze your decisions or the decisions that are available before you, um, you, you have to, the scenario that you're using matters, right? So if you assume that the population doesn't respond, that the government doesn't respond to this incoming pandemic, you get a lot of deaths. They had other care scenarios in the same first release paper saying, if we do these control measures, we would expect these, you know, this level, this extent of um, outbreak and this many deaths, right? And, and so, you know, as the scenario changes, the, the modeling can change, but the fundamental insights, which is where I was going with this, that, um, you know, you can, you can use a scientific knowledge or a knowledge base to sort of understand the relative difference between decisions, I think remains. Um, you know, whether or not we're able to teach the media and teach politicians to have that level of thinking going on when they're looking at, at climate change um, remains to be seen, but I think it's an important lesson I've seen uh, over the last um, over the last couple months. Well, on that point, I know Chisari wants to jump in, but on that point, if I'm not mistaken, the Imperial College, um, the white paper, didn't actually call for lockdowns. And so is there, you know, as you're looking to, you know, how you're going to enact uh, climate policy, is there something to be learned from that, that this very influential white paper uh, that, that affected what, you know, the, the policy, not just to the UK, but apparently in the United States as well, it didn't actually call for the policy that was enacted. <laughs> so how do you, how do you deal with that in terms of, is there a way to learn? How do we actually get, you know, communicate to politicians for them to enact policy? It's kind of feels like it's playing telephone. I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a question there, but is there something that you can learn from that? So, um, one of the other, you know, it's a limitation of science, but, you know, the, you know, in the context of the pandemic, they can model these different scenarios reflecting how people behave or reflecting their average connectivity or tr the transmissibility of the disease. And, um, and, and you can sort of reverse engineer the, the government response, right? Lockdown or not lockdown, close schools or don't close schools that might give you that, that modeling result. And likewise, you can see that in climate too, right? You can say, well, we want emissions to go along this lower path rather than this higher path. And you can kind of, you can try to reverse engineer the, the policy decisions that will lead to that. But the reality is that science only gives you one piece of a broader set of um, considerations, right? Uh, you know, the, weighing our, our our economy against environmental damage or uh, the economy against lives lost in a pandemic is something that the you know political leadership in a democratic society is supposed to do. The science can't really tell you how to do that. Um, and likewise, you know a, a, a computer model, um, at least the ones that we have, uh, they're not really designed to deal with the imperfect world of, of public policy and that bleeding down into individuals' behavior or societal decision-making. So, you know, we, we need to learn, I think, I think, Doug, you and I probably would like to see the same learning going on, how to assess these risks and how to take, how to, and then how to respond to them in a way that is uh, judicious, it may be fast, but is not done in a sort of panic emergency situation. Um, uh, you know, because there you, you know, you, you may overstep, you may make mistakes and, and you may have regrets. One thing that makes trying to do analogies between the coronavirus pandemic and climate change difficult is actually something that both of them have in common, which is uh, there's a lot of disagreement about how dangerous they actually are, right? So uh, certainly if you were to go back to January, February, uh, there, there was a lot of difference of opinion in terms of, you know, just how, just how dangerous is the coronavirus? Uh, what are the likely outcomes? And there was a, seemed like there was a brief period, maybe uh, during the, the last 
week or two in March where kind of everybody was freaked out about it uh, or almost everybody. And then strangely, oh, now that's kind of reverted. Uh, and so people have very different, um, different perspectives on, you know, whether, whether the virus was overhyped or, uh, or what, right. And that's also something that is true of climate change. Of course, uh, the big, the big difference between climate change and COVID is that, uh, the coronavirus is played, this is played out over a course of a couple months, whereas climate change is, is, you know, we're still in the more early stages and it's going to play out over a course of decades and centuries or whatever. Um, so, so that, 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 uh, makes it hard to evaluate, you know, what the lessons should be, what, what the lessons learned should be if you can't, if, if people don't have such, they have such diametrically opposed views of, of how the, the COVID thing is, is playing out. My personal perspective is I, and, you know, I understand that uh, these are not easy jobs necessarily being, you know, public health or leadership or whatever. Uh, my own opinion is I, I don't think that the uh, public health experts have done a very good job. Uh, so I, I would agree with a lot of folks on that. However, I tend to think that their errors uh, were more, uh, you know, tend to be tend to fall more in the category of underplaying the threat, especially early on. And you know, I don't want to like play gotcha with anybody, but certainly there is, I think, a tendency in the public health community um, to uh, not want to overly alarm people, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or, or, you know, or even, and, and oftentimes this can manifest itself in a situation where they feel like they have to underplay either the most likely situations or, you know, some uh, within the realm of possibility, worst case scenarios, because they're, they're afraid that this will cause panic among people or that, um, if they, if they, you know, if they say, if they say a scenario that that's kind of too scary, people will, it will induce paralysis or disbelief instead of action because it's just too much to comprehend. Right. Um, so that, that is something that I think happens with, uh, COVID. And I know that this is a discussion that happens among, uh, people in the climate change debate of, you know, there's, there's a, there's a big controversy of, you know, uh, you know, how, how much, how much do you want to, uh, yeah. how much emphasis do you want to put you on? You know, should you, should you call it climate change an existential risk or should you, you know, is it, is it bad enough in the, in the most likely case or are you taking a stance that, well, you know, if I, if I line up a set of scientific studies in one way and kind of work my way through a, through a decision tree, I end up with something that looks relatively benign or, you know, this is kind of the lukewarm perspective on climate. If you're, if you're familiar with the vocabulary, people who say, yeah, absolutely. Climate change is real. It's happening. It's human cause, but it's, uh, it's unlikely to be as, as big an issue as the, the media and scientists proclaim. And, uh, and doing something about it, it's going to cost more than, than, than just kind of dealing with it. I think, you know, it, I, I hesitate to score to, to, um, concretely people who are working in co in, in the, on the COVID issue or on, on the assessments of its danger, because I, you know, I, I think at this point we still don't know quite a bit. Um, but, but one of the, when I think about that concept in terms of climate change, you know, one of the things we talk about as motivating climate action is the, is the, is not that we're absolutely certain that climate change is going to have this particular deleterious effect at this time, um, in, in these places, uh, right. But rather there is a lot of uncertainty, um, 
there's a veil of ignorance over over what is going to happen. And it comes from multiple places. It comes from uh, our inability to, to perfectly model uh, or precisely model the evolution of the climate system uh, because we're still, you know, there, there are aspects of it that we're still learning about. It comes from our inability to know what the, you know, 20 years or 30 years or 100 years hence uh, how vulnerable people and economies and and ecology or ecological systems will be to the scale of changes that are being provoked. And so you you end up with a sort of a risk distribution, right? And and in some in some parts of that distribution, things look relatively benign. So you can create a whole bunch of conditionals that maybe doesn't look so bad. And you can a set of conditionals that says it's an absolute disaster, potentially, you know, in in the sense that civilization as we know it doesn't proceed or or gets radically smaller. And, you know, there is play that scenario that you were painting for COVID with climate a hundred years from now. In the in the world where it turns out that it, climate change is really bad. Um. You know, will will people look back at the scientists uh, today and say they didn't warn us enough that it would be this bad? Um, that's relatively tricky. I mean, you you have to, as a person who's talking about technical information, you always want to be precise. You want to be accurate, right? Like people don't get into science because they, you know, because they're not detail oriented. Um, but you want to. Uh, you want to, you know, part of the challenge of communicating uh, something that is, or communicating a risk management problem is, it's well possible that that it's worse than you expected, um, and uh, and and that can be a real problem. <laughs> That's why I think you know we we argue for acting under climate change um, with you know as, as a hedging strategy uh, as opposed to like a you know an optimization strategy because the, 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 the downside of being wrong and under responding, I think is really can be very, very large. I think that's where I would draw a parallel, right? I, I think that one of the issues you're going to run into, if you're not already running into it, is I think that given the economic uh, devastation, I, I think that's a fair word, at least temporary uh, devastation, uh, you know, we're looking at, I think, something like 20% unemployment. It could get worse than that. The GDP is going to just essentially plunge. We don't know how long how long the recovery is going to take. Uh, I think that one of the problems that you're going to face is that people that might otherwise be indifferent, uh, maybe not put up a lot of resistance to uh, policies meant to, you know, to mitigate climate change, I think are going to resist it more now saying, hey, I've already done, I've already gone through my austerity. I, I sat out of the marketplace for eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it's going to be. I lost my job. I'm going to have a slow recovery. It's going to take me so much time to re recover my, my savings, to rebuild my business. I think that's the type of issue you're going to face. How do you plan to respond I, to that I mean, type of uh, First off, I, I completely agree. Um, and you, you can see sort of a lot of a lot of people looking at these heavy restrictions, big impositions on personal and economic liberty and like true economic pain um, and and see like a preview of the Green New Deal. Right. Government coming in and telling you what you can and can't do, pushing you out of your job uh, all to achieve some some agenda, some some, you know. You can even accept that agenda, right? That, you know, this disease threatens my grandmother or or climate change is a real and a problem, but I'm not I'm not doing that. Um, where climate as a as a as an agenda or climate action, um, I think, needs to focus is on the case in the mean in the immediate term that a lot of the things that are good for climate right now are also pretty good economically, right? So uh, return on investment in a lot of polluting industries over the last 10 years has gone down compared to renewable or clean energy. 
the, the, the market status of a lot of incoming technology um, re- is reducing the price of shifting to clean, if not making it just absolutely cheaper. Um, there's employment and growth opportunities in the clean energy sectors um, that are not just make work, right? They, they increase productivity. They can, they're industries that we think are going to be around for a long time, particularly in a world where there's sort of a, um, a collective march toward, toward decarbonization. And so those things I think need to be emphasized to, 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 to argue that, you know, the solution to this, the climate problem is not the same as the, oh man, is this virus out of control? Pull the ripcord, shut the whole economy down that we've seen over the last few months, but is more akin to some of the more thoughtful proposals we've had perhaps for, uh, for dealing with COVID and, and providing economic resilience, right? That what you, what we really need to do is kind of shift our investment to, to higher contact tracers because that has a public benefit and it allows you to kind of resume economic activity um, in a meaningful way. In climate, you would you could argue like, you know, a lot of what we want to do to decarbonize is build stuff, replace infrastructure. Um, and, and that in the, in the, even in the short term could pay off, in the medium term could be really helpful. And then in the longest term, uh, accumulates huge benefits by avoiding the damages of, um, of climate change. You so you make it a you make it a building project, right? You make it a uh, you make it a pro growth project as opposed to a restriction project. Yeah, and I, I think that's right because I think that there's going to be so yeah. much money sloshing around that I think that if you know I think you and I discussed offline maybe on Twitter uh, the idea of uh, you know subsidies for carbon capture or something. I think that will be that goes down easy. But if there's more restrictions on, say, for instance, where I'm at in Texas, if there's more restrictions on the oil and gas industry recovering, yeah. I think that's going to be met with resistance. But you said something, and it reminded me of a, an exchange I saw between AOC <laughs> and Jonah Goldberg. Um, and it, it, but it was it was an interesting one where she was saying how that this is the right time to be investing in uh, clean energy, and his response back was, "Isn't that exactly backwards?" That, you know, just the other day, we theoretically saw, um, the, you know, uh, oil prices being negative. Of course, that's a bit of a uh, an anomaly there because of the storage issue. But with oil, oil and gas prices so low, isn't it explain that explain the economics there? Why wouldn't it be that clean technology, clean energy would have a harder time competing with oil and gas when oil and gas prices are so low? So um, you have to be a little careful because things aren't perfect substitutes for each other, right? Right. So, um, you know, uh, renewable energy, particularly solar and wind power uh, that you're kind of adding on the margins today has incredibly low marginal cost price tags. Um, And so that being sort of the the preferred uh, economic move is slightly different from, you know, it doesn't really matter what oil costs because not a lot of people are out building oil, oil burning power stations anymore. Right. Right. Um, the, the, where, where that analogy, uh, might, or where that, where those, those two things might come in conflict with conflict would be like electric vehicles, for instance, mm-hmm. right. That, um, if gas is really cheap, then the economic incentive to switch to an EV, which is powered with, they tend to be more efficient. It's powered with, uh, cheap and, and clean energy in a lot of places. Um, and has lower maintenance costs. Uh, so the life, even if it's like more expensive today, the lifetime cost may be less or as the cost of the batteries and therefore the sticker price goes down, then you, you, you sort of create an economic incentive to, to drive an EV. Um, lo- persistent low gas prices w- would, um, would help, would, would get in the way of that transition. Right. Right. Um, where I think the, you know, so, Two, two comments, two things that our shop has produced that I think we're trying to deal with these competing uh, um, uh, pressures and storylines. One is, uh, I think, you know, we don't want to get in the there, there's a there's a way to look at the crash in the oil and gas industry, which is I recognize has been really bad. 
um, and and try and separate, okay, what of this is structural versus what of this is COVID, right? International international supply competition isn't, isn't a COVID issue. Um, but also, how do you take this time and say, if there is going to be a lot of stimulus and relief spending, do you want to do you want to use it to buy down debt laden companies, or in in our proposal, uh, pay oil service companies and workers to go and and do environmental remediation, capping old wells that have been left abandoned, um, offering low interest loans to to um, producers to replace leaky equipment to to keep their methane emissions down. There's a lot of stuff I think you could be doing that would allow uh, the industry as it as it recovers or is recapitalized to uh, be cleaner and more efficient over the long term. So in the context of like this is an opportunity to accelerate progress, the U.S. has a pretty efficient oil and gas sector in terms of its emissions. There, there's there, I would I would view this moment as a time to uh, invest further in those efficiencies um, for the, for long-term rather than kind of assume, well, what we need to do right now is, um, um, it's tricky financial engineering or, uh, you know, try to get back as soon as we can because the energy costs are so low. Right. Yeah. I don't think that anybody on, on, on this show would, would be looking to bail out any energy companies. Right. Uh, and, uh, I, I do think that one thing I, I, I like, some of those proposals, and I think that one thing that it, and I, as I look as I look at what I think is going to happen in West Texas, I think that you're probably going to see majors take on uh, more of the producing reserves. I think you're going to see larger oil field service companies consolidate, um, so that there won't be so many uh, so many drillers there. And I think that's going to help somewhat with uh, the glut that we have. And so, in some sense, what you're describing would actually be welcome for so many smaller service providers, even if it's a different line of uh, within the oil industry, I think this would actually be a lifeline to them. Uh, could, so it could actually uh, serve several purposes. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of about like, you know, one of the problems, if particularly if this, uh, if this kind of re- recovery takes long, a long time is the, the sort of the social connections of, uh, you know, I know how to do this job and I work with this company and I'm located in a place that allows me to do that. It, if that stuff starts to break down, recovery gets harder. Um, and so I, you know, what I, you know, that proposal I particularly like because you can you can keep a lot of people doing kind of the similar, you know, things that are, that are pretty similar to their their day to day life under business as usual, um, and substantial public benefits in the meantime. You know, so the I guess the one thing that I would say. Just to reinforce uh, on the reinforce kind of what Joseph was saying, you know, I think um, the 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 type of response matters, right? So, Doug, you were mentioning earlier that I mean the economic fallout from the coronavirus pandemic in the United States has been pretty horrific. You know, people are talking about 20%, 30% unemployment. And uh, I, did, I was just recently looking and in Denmark, the unemployment rate right now is I think it's like 4.7%, right? Uh, their stock market is up for the year a little bit. Um, they all they did a lockdown. They came out of the lockdown having, you know, substantially reduced the spread of the virus. Um, so, you know, obviously some of that is just accounting because in the United States, the our policy response was to beef up unemployment insurance so that people who got laid off would have a, a stronger safety net. Um, and in Denmark, they they've done other sorts of supports. And I don't want to. I certainly don't want to suggest that uh, the, the economy in Denmark hasn't been hit at all by uh, COVID-19 or that whatever they did, you know, th- their policy response is completely applicable to the United States. But certainly it is the case that it really matters a lot what you do in response to something like this. There are good, there are good ways to go about 
go about it and there are bad ways to go about it. And I think that's also true with climate. Yeah, I, Josiah, I agree with that. And if you guys read that uh, Ross Duhat book, uh, Decadence or the Decadence Society. Yes. Let me tell you, like in the midst of a botched response to a pandemic uh, here in the United States is a bad time to read that book (laughs) because it can make you, it can make you a bit pessimistic. Um, But I think, you know, one of the things that we should, that we can draw from that uh, you know, that comparison, and we were talking about it earlier, is um, knowing that these risks exist, planning for them, and sort of having a response that isn't necessarily, you know, in 2020, we know exactly what needs to happen in 2040 with the energy system. But instead says, we know the direction we want to go, we know the steps we can take in the in the near and, and medium term to push us along that along that path. Um, I think really can, you know, can create a resilient and meaningful response. I mean, I, I don't know that a lot of people are looking at the U.S. response to uh, coronavirus and seeing a lot of competence um, or a lot of willingness to deal with uh, new information or a lot of willingness to, um, uh, you know, change the program to, to deal with an emergent threat. And it actually, in, in some ways, it personally has made me slightly more concerned about climate change than I was before in the sense that, you know, I, I, I don't I don't know that we're really, you know, even though the timescales are, di- are, are different, um, the fact that you can you you that, that climate change could could really cause problems in our in our society needs to up its ability to, to change and respond. I think is uh, one of the things that when I look at these comparisons to Denmark or other places, I see. So I want to talk now about something completely different. And in a prior episode, we had a guest on to talk about the vaccine development and the so-called human challenge trials where people, uh, in order to speed up the process of developing vaccines, once they had gone through the initial animal testing and the phase one human safety testing, um, people would volunteer to uh, let themselves, you know, get the vaccine and then be deliberately exposed to the virus to find out whether the vaccine works or not. And uh, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because uh, you, Joseph, have signed up to be a volunteer in uh, one of these human challenge trials. And you also helped me convince my wife to let me sign up to be a volunteer. Oh, oh no. In these human challenge trials, <laughs> assuming that they uh, actually occur. And you can go back and listen to that prior podcast and talk about some of the, you know, regulatory and political obstacles that there might be in that. So I, I guess the, you know, the, the, the question that I, I have is like, what made you do that? Right. Because, you know, obviously, uh, even even if a, a vaccine has gone through some initial testing or whatever, uh, there, there's um, there's always going to be risks involved, and and there's also risks that uh, the vaccine might not work, and and you know, there's risks from the virus too. So, like, what what, what was you, what were you thinking, right? <laughs> oh man, um, so you know, my understanding is that. One of the things that that you know that makes a, a vaccine uh, development take a long time is for for a variety of, of ethical reasons, um, you know, they doctors don't want to to do these kind of immediate challenges, and instead they they distribute the vaccine and test it against people's baseline exposure. Um, I you know my wife and I are both scientists. And uh, neither of us work in a field that is relevant to to this pandemic. And we've been frustrated by our inability to do much about it other than um, stay at home and isolate ourselves and, and try to um, not infect others if we happen to be asymptomatic carriers. Um, we have, thankfully, been healthy thus far. Um, 
And so, you know, we both saw it as an opportunity to to contribute um, to a collective problem in a way that we didn't think was overly risky for either one of us. I don't think, you know, it's 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 this is like the zeroth step in what I'm sure would be a long process should they let us do that. Uh, I don't think uh, we would both do it uh, on account of having little kids. Um, but I, I, we both are, are willing to engage the process. And I think we both would be able to say we have a reasonable understanding of the risks that are present um, and, and, and view a, 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 you know, the faster deployment of a vaccine as, as worthy of, of taking those risks personally. Oh, uh, yeah, it's probably too late to, to say now's the wrong time to, to impose a carbon tax. Absolutely wrong. <laughs> Absolutely wrong, Doug. I mean, in, and part of it is, you know, we were talking earlier about that, uh, the you know, uh, AOC yeah. and Jonah Goldberg. I mean, a lot of people, you know, I, I argue for carbon taxes on a regular basis. A lot of people will take the economy, the economics 101 case, right? Sure. If you were able to get that. Uh, through the public policy machine, uh, you would you'd be able to internalize an externality, and market forces would move toward decarbonization in an efficient way. Uh, you might even get them to believe the idea that if you're doing you know other changes to the tax code, you can create a more efficient tax code with a carbon tax in the mix. Um, not just because of the externalities, but because you can remove other other barriers to investment or whatever. Um, but they say, look at France. Aha, Mr. Smart academic study citing person. When even the French who purportedly care a lot about climate change, Paris, the Paris agreement was signed in their country. Um, when faced with modest increases in fuel taxes, the, the, the working class, uh, revolts. And, and that is something we should take seriously, right? We, I mean, one, we don't want to create a, a, a tax system that punishes, uh, you know, people at, outside of what their what their emissions are, or, or if they're not able to handle it. And and two, there are real political constraints to achieving carbon pricing. People have been talking about carbon pricing for thirty years, uh, in 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 the context of dealing with climate change, and yet its progress has been very slow. Uh, and one of the things that politicians tell you is I don't want to raise you know, prices on my constituents. At a time when uh, oil prices are very low and one of the places where people sort of have the least ability to change behavior, um, that is surface transportation, right? Driving, and, you know, uh, as opposed to, you know, the. The, the kind of power you buy is determined by, by the utility uh, in most cases. Um, you know, so, so price at the pump becomes a huge indicator of, of or, a, or a huge point of opposition for carbon pricing. And so at a time when Americans are paying very little for carbon price, for gasoline, I think that creates an opportunity to say um, we've, we've been getting away for free for far too long. And at a, at a moment when people are driving less and they're paying less for gasoline, we're going to start using things like carbon pricing. Um, there's, a, there's a strong argument. I don't know that I would do it tomorrow, given that we're in you know, the midst of a prolonged economic shock. But I think uh, planning for a carbon price to take hold in the next uh, y- year or two, say, you know, you could, you know, exact implementation could, could vary. And then set it up to to start rather low and, and go up over time could meaningfully impact uh, investment decisions that are made in the midst of the recovery uh, for for a lower carbon recovery than we would otherwise have without meaningfully sacrificing the speed uh, or distribution of the recovery. I, I mostly was joking since we were already 44 minutes in. I was mostly joking even, even bringing it up. No, this um, is the most important thing. We're not going to do it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's unlikely, but we need to. We should be talking about it, right? 
Well, you know, my my concern there, I, I, I get your point, but I also my concern there being here in Texas and I'm a practicing lawyer with a lot of clients that are in this space in the oil industry is I'm, I'm going to be reluctant to you know be excited about anything that is going to slow recovery of that particular industry. What's what's how, how can you uh, you know, is there a way that this doesn't slow the recovery of the oil and gas industry. I mean, it's sort of, in some sense, it's it's meant to be a tax on the oil and gas industry. I mean, that's and the sort of the uh, the old the old constitutional adage: the power to tax is the power to destroy. Isn't this meant to to actually curtail the use of oil and gas? Um. Yes, but. Um. The oil and gas, you know, the present business model is a climate problem, and we need to find a way around that if we're going to do much about climate change. Um, I would also argue, and I, and I, you know, forgive me for trying to be too smart if I am, but I would also argue that this crisis has shown that the oil and gas industry in the U.S., on the oil side especially, has some structural challenges to deal with that are that are it's going to keep facing, right? So you look at the penetration of, of EVs as a thing that will reduce demand. And consumers are going to, you know, to some extent, are going to move to EVs um, by government policy in Europe and in China and increasingly in the United States, at least in particular states. Um, and probably at some point, consumer sentiment could change. So as a risk management so problem you need to they need to think a little bit about you know is, are we going to recover to in in the same way from this that we did in 2009 um and i think you know if there is a really strong case for uh carbon capture for what you know sort of a carbon management industry moving around uh you know let's see get my order my order of magnitude correct millions Billions of tons of CO two annually um, in the in the near in the near term, right over over the course of my career, and a lot of the investments that we're going to need to see to accomplish that to actually have a real CO two management industry and not like demonstration projects that that amount to very little are going to require uh, societal buy in. So this might be CO two pipelines, it might be demonstration projects on, on industrial facilities. It might be, you know, near-term subsidization of, of carbon capture. And I think from a political standpoint, uh, the industry could do well to accept uh, a relatively low carbon price, um, which where, the in, where some of it is going to investment in, in that infrastructure, both intellectual and workforce, as well as like just pipes. Um, and... And, you know, we could find some sort of uh, system whereby um, this, you know, this sort of new non-emissive industry, which is doing a lot of the same things in terms of managing large chemistry projects, being really smart about how geology works, um, but is running the running the pipes in both directions because, um, you know, otherwise, I think a lot of those structural challenges could play or play out over time in a way that the, the industry is not going to be able to deal with. Well, I think that's I think that's the the issue there is I think that over time I think the industry knows that they're going to be making changes, but as we're hopefully across almost every industry we're racing back to a recovery. I don't think the oil and gas industry is going to you know, take kindly to the idea that that, that that their recovery should be throttled, so yeah. to speak. And, and, um, and I and think so. we should, you know, and that we always want to be, I think we want to be careful about, you know, you know, recovery versus what does the next period of growth look like? And I'm much more interested in the next period of growth, uh, having uh, big gains in GDP with minuscule or, or dropping CO2, minimal increases or dropping uh, CO2 incre- uh, emissions. But that's slightly different from like what happens over the next six months. Right. No, I agree. I, I, and I, I think that's, and that's really sort of probably where I differ on the point is that over, 
you know, being here in Texas, being surrounded by people in the oil and gas industry, having clients in this space, you know, they're ready to get back to work. They're ready for something to return to normal. But also being somebody that has attended uh, American Petroleum Institute luncheons for years, you know, they, you know, I think the industry very much understands that there's a lot of change coming. But I would also say this, too, is, you know, I, I certainly understand what you're saying about electric vehicles, but there's also a, a, a bit of a thought that there's going to be a lot more people wanting to uh, drive to work, to commute to work, rather than take, you know, any type of public transportation for, for a while because of the um, because of the potential transmission through, you know, on subways and places like this. So, I mean, I, uh, again, I have some sympathy for the oil and gas industry and I, I, I'm sure that the last thing they want is to, to, to slow the, their recovery, even though you're right. I mean, there's certainly going to be some structural challenges over time. Right. I mean, I think the things that I'm proposing would be rel would, would be noise against any signal, um, Right. You know, I, I think about and this is one of the one of the key differences in, in designing a response to climate versus designing response to to a pandemic. It's like, you know, you know, you can you can sleep on it. I'm not saying that we have forever to sort out uh, how we should try and achieve decarbonization, but you do have a little time to consider. It's like you think about it like steering a boat. Right. As opposed to a car, you want to start this turn early and uh, and, and be gradual in the pressure you apply on the rudder. Um, and I think we should think about decarbonization from a systems perspective in that way. Um, and you know, the, what I've been kind of trying to do in this time, which has made me, you know, if it's not making you rethink your policy agenda, you're probably not paying attention. Um, we're really thinking about, you know, what, what is a way that you can get toward, um, the next period of growth being much more low carbon and I, and, and respecting the challenges of, of the industries that you're working with or, or others. I think you're probably right, at least in the, in the short term, that uh, a lot of people are going to see low gas prices and uh, infectious um, uh, fellow passengers and, and choose cars over, over transit or, or even you know, suburban flight or other things. Do you think business travel is going to come back in a meaningful way? You know, that's a tough one. Um, I think I think it's going to take a real long term hit. Um, it, you know, put it this way: I I actually had the flu. Um, I went to New York and um, in January came back with the flu, and I figured that I picked up the flu. Hopefully, it was just the flu and not COVID. Although I'm recovered either way, um, and I figured that I probably got it either on the subway or on, an, mm -hmm. on a flight. And either way, I, you know, it makes me pretty nervous knowing how much productivity I lost from that, which is probably just an ordinary flu, not even COVID, uh, losing weeks of productivity and just the way it made me feel. I think anybody who's experienced, even witnessed what's happened to other people, I think they're going to be very leery to get on a plane, uh, even though I, I, I have heard commentary about how clean the air is on planes i still still it's going to make me very nervous to get on a plane again anytime soon i'm not going to i'm not going to take any more flights than necessary yeah i mean my sense is that you know even even if you look out a couple of years from now right so we've we by then it will have burned through or we'll have a vaccine or we'll have treatments or you know it i think it's hard to imagine it being as unmanageable as, as it is now. Um, you know, a year and a half of, of people figuring out how to do business um, over, over, digital, over digital media, Zoom calls, uh, phone calls, I think could just be like, I wonder if there's like large parts of the travel industry are just like not going to be necessary anymore. I mean, right. leisure travel, sure. We'll come back, you know, every, you know, going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving. Uh, but the, the sense that, you know, we were spending a lot of money flying people places for in-person meetings and, and firms wanting to be lean in a time of economic recovery are just not going to go back to, to, to flying people around, uh, sort of makes sense to me. And I wonder, I mean, that has both emissions implications and economic right. you know, sector by sector economic implications. Sure. 
Uh, it's very interesting. I don't know. It's, it's unprecedented times or, or, you know, at least ones we haven't felt in a hundred years. How's, what is the sentiment in the uh, oil and gas industry? Are they feeling good about the modest price recoveries? Um, yeah, I mean, put it this way. I think that based on the few people that I've talked to about this, you know, everyone's expecting the the prices to bounce back in the fall a little bit, uh, back to where you can meet, actually make a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, here's the thing, too, is I'm sitting here in Houston, um, and so in, as opposed to, say, being in Midland. Um, right. So I have uh, clients and friends and contacts that are in the offshore industry, and that space is very different in terms of the economics, but also the contracts are much more long term. So the you know short term uh, fluctuations in prices doesn't affect the offshore space nearly as much. And there's a lot of Houston that's dedicated to the offshore space as opposed to the Permian. Although obviously you have so many oil and gas headquarters here uh, that are you know uh, that have interest in the Permian as well. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think it's. The, the running joke in the industry is you, you measure your career based on how many downturns you've gone through. So everybody knows there's going to be, you know, you're going to get through this one, then you're going to, then you're going to have another one in a few years. So it's, it's, it's not that unusual to have these type of short term uh, downturns. Yeah. I suppose it'll be very interesting to see what happens in terms of consolidation. Right. I mean, right. It, that, that has effects on climate the sort of the politics of climate too, that, you know, a lot of the big majors uh, are, are happy to embrace carbon pricing schemes or, or, you know, the Paris agreement and, or, or in, you know, in several cases have set sort of like firm wide, relatively robust climate goals. Uh, right. Absolutely. And you wonder kind of how much, you know, whereas a lot of the smaller operators and their industry associations are more resistant to climate stuff. I think I no, I think that I think that's actually huge. I think that you're right on that. I think if you talk with the majors, you hear their presentations, they're very much more into um, you know, into fighting climate change. And I think that there's been talk of consolidation in the Permian before, but I think that this I think that now not just because of the coronavirus, but I think also because of the global competition, I think it just makes so much more sense. I mean, first off, uh, you know, all the assets are discounted right now, right? right. So if you, you know, if you might as well go in and consolidate uh, your reserves. Um, and then what that does is if, and then same with the drillers too, is I think that you'll probably end up seeing, since if you're going to have the majors owning more of the reserves, I think they're more likely to use uh, larging, larger drilling outfits. And when that happens, I think then you're going to probably see them manage, um, the output a little better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you're not going to need any type of, uh, Texas railroad commission regulating the, the output or anything like that. I think that they will, because they're going to have an interest in main, you know, supporting the prices. Some people might, uh, if it were a different industry, they might have a little bit of concerns about monopoly and anti-competitive behaviors. But I think all told, you know, they're going to have you're going to have multiple majors out there, multiple large companies involved. I don't think that's a big concern, but I think it will actually manage the output a little better than we have all these wildcatters out there. Right. And I and I, and I, I think it will actually, you know, such a thing could meaningfully impact, you know, the, the industry's ability to play a, a um a pragmatic but forward position on climate, right? The, the sort of a constructive position that, um, you know, it, the, a lot of the majors have been able to, I, I, you know, kind of not hide, but their, their support of carbon pricing is, is less important when a lot of, you know, mom and pops and, and other places are just vigorously opposed. And so some consolidation could, could create conditions where, um, industry deal making surrounding carbon pricing and support for stuff like I was talking about, or maybe other tax or regulatory changes, uh, could, could get more traction, um, right. in the near, in sort of the next, you know, the next few years, probably not this year, this year, we're just, you know, it's, a, you know, we're trying to stop the bleeding. <laughs> uh, so our guest today 
has been Joseph Mikett of the Niskanen Center. Uh, Joseph, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. Stay healthy. Stay free. Yes. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urbane Cowboys.